good morning. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. Really excited to be with you. Um, man, it's just so good to be with you. My, uh, me and my wife, we actually just had our third baby girl three weeks ago now. And uh, thank you, thank you. Clapping is okay. Don't really clap for me, clap for my wife. She's the champion. Uh, she did it, you know. We, uh, we drove to the hospital real, real, really quickly because that baby just started coming all of a sudden. And uh, no time for the epidural, which is what she's always wanted. She's always preferred that. And so she was just a champ through it all. And uh, you women, uh, what, what you guys go through to bring all of us into the world, really. Um, we, I couldn't be more thankful after seeing it raw and unfiltered. So um, <laughs> it's great to be with all you guys here. And, um, you know, I took a couple weeks off after uh, uh, Viva was born. We, we named her Viva because uh, she's just a reminder of life in the midst of this hard time. Um, her full name is Viviana, but we, we call her Viva. And um, just in this couple weeks off, I was really just reminded afresh of, of just how awesome it is that it's actually my job to be able to just get up and, and talk about the Bible with you guys, uh, to help groups talk about the Bible to them, to help people apply the Bible in their life, to help people who aren't Christians yet uh, to understand how to think about the Bible. Um, it's just so cool. This is like my favorite thing in the world. And so just to, just to be able to be here with you guys and just do this is just so special to me. And so I think this is really great. And uh, so long as, as people still keep on showing up and that there's still a city that needs to hear the word of God, we're going to continue to teach the word here. And so thanks for being a part of it. Uh, for you, uh, you know, 20, 25 people who are here in the room, that's great. For you, uh, 30 or so households that are joining us this morning, welcome. Uh, for you, 50 to 60 households that are joining us throughout the week, welcome to you as well. Uh, we're so glad that everybody's here to really unpack what this word has to say because in it is so much life. There's so much life in this, and we're going to be able to see that this morning as we uh, continue in our, our sermon series, Exodus, that we're, we've entitled God Moves Us Out to Move Us in. God moves his people out to move his people in. And if you're new with us, don't worry, we're still really early in the story. Uh, we're going to be picking it up in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3 is where we're going to be working from today, so if you brought your Bible, go ahead and open up to Exodus 3, or if you have um, your phone, go ahead and type in Exodus 3 to Google. Uh, if you don't have either of those things, that's fine. We're going to be throwing it up on the screen as well for you to track along with it, okay? So um, Exodus chapter 3 and um, like Dave said, we're going to be really unpacking one of the central stories of um, the, the faith of this God, of, of Yahweh, that we find in the Bible. In Exodus 3, we come across the burning bush. The burning bush. This is something that if you've been a Christian for a while, you've heard about. If you aren't a Christian, you've, you've definitely heard about it before, and you might have a lot of questions about it. And just to place this in the story for you, I'm going to catch everybody up to speed really quickly. This comes up in the story where um, Israel had gone into Egypt as 70 people. Over 400 years, they multiplied to perhaps over a million people. The Pharaoh gets really nervous that these million people underneath him are actually going to revolt and potentially take over Egypt. Um, it was never uh, the, the intention of the Hebrews to do that. They were just trying to be a blessing where they were. That was what God had tasked them to do, to be a gateway of blessing. God's blessing would go through the Hebrews to the rest of the world. Egypt actually experienced that first. They were spared a huge famine because that happened. But eventually, a Pharaoh comes on the throne that doesn't remember that that's how God's blessing was working through the Hebrews. A pharaoh forgets that and gets nervous that these Hebrews are going to overthrow, and so he enslaves them. They continue to multiply, and so he issues orders to kill all the Hebrew uh, baby boys when they're born. Those go ignored by the midwives, and then he issues a broad command to all Egyptians everywhere. If you see a Hebrew baby boy, 
throw it in the Nile. This is the situation that Moses is born into. Moses is born into this situation and his mother hides him. She's really scared. She's probably seen a lot of baby boys thrown into the Nile by Egyptians. And she's very, very scared. So she eventually puts him in a basket that can float. She's kind of fashioned to the float. In, in a funny way, she's like, okay, I'm putting my baby boy in the Nile, but I'm going to do it upstream from your daughter, Pharaoh, and we're going to rely on the love of a woman and a baby to keep my baby alive. Moses is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and is raised in the courts and in the palace of the Pharaoh. Um, one day he, he murders a Hebrew slave driver, or uh, an Egyptian slave driver that is uh, harming a, a, a Hebrew slave. And it becomes public knowledge. And Pharaoh tries to kill him. And, and so God delivers Moses and, and Moses runs. Moses runs away from Pharaoh and he's in the wilderness. And so here, it's, uh, he, he's been in the wilderness for a long time, it says. We're going to see that in the introduction here. After it, he's going to be in the wilderness for a long time. And then this event of the burning bush happens. Okay, and, and Moses has experienced, like Dave talked about last week, God's mercy in this delivering event. And then uh, also his grace in the wilderness. He started a family of his own in the wilderness. And, and it's at this burning bush that we d- discover why God has wanted and decided to save this murderer, Moses. Okay? And, and there's, there's a lot of things that in, in this account. It's jammed full, but there's three big things that we're going to pull out of it today um, that, that can really enable us to lean into this. When God moves us out, he does so to move us into something else in life. And, and, and that is uh, what moves God himself. That's the first one we're going to talk about. Um, how he works with us to move us. And, and then um, who he is. All right? So we're just going to unpack those three things. Uh, what actually moves God, how he works with us, and who he is. Okay? We're going to keep it simple. All right, so let's, let's talk about what moves God. Because the people of Israel have been suffering for a, a long time at this point. Since Moses was born, Moses was born into suffering. Now he's grown up, and he's been he's gone into the wilderness. He's been in the wilderness a very long time, and now um, the Hebrews are still suffering. They've been suffering for a long time, and in fact, the suffering seems to have gotten even worse. And, and so, really, what we see we see what moves God tied to this passage through an introduction that this passage even has for itself. And that introduction actually starts back in verse 23 of chapter 2. We're going to throw it on the screen for you, but let's read it together here. Look for the Hebrew suffering. That's what's highlighted in this passage. All right, so Moses has been in the wilderness, and then he got married. He's had kids. And then, after a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, and God saw the Israelites, and God knew, and God knew. The suffering of the Hebrews is highlighted here. There's, there's so many different words they actually use. We only have two of the words in English. I guess we're not as good as suffering as the Hebrews were. We, they're translated, they're groaning. They were crying out. In Hebrew, there's, there's additional words, additional synonyms tried to, to use to highlight just how much these people were lamenting. We have a new Pharaoh, but the same suffering, perhaps worse. They're, they're, they're crying out to God in, in their misery, in, the, in their agony, in their anguish, in their discomfort, in their distress. Things are not going well. They're crying out to him. But this passage gives us hope. 
Because for the first time in the book of Exodus, what we have is God acting. God is stepping forth into actions, and, and not just uh, very whimsically. We have the, the article of Yahweh tied to each one of these actions. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. He knew. So one can't help, one can't help but, but think that he has some good news and a good plan in store for these slaves. And he hears them. He starts by, by, by hearing him, and, and, and that's so unique. Uh, he hears his people. God hears his people. That's the unified testament of all of the scriptures, that God hears his people when they cry out to him, no matter what, no matter what. And, and this is one of the ways that Christianity is entirely unique from all other religions in the world. My, my, my wife and I were actually thinking for a long time that we were going to be bringing the gospel to um, Muslims in, in Turkey, actually. And so we studied up on Islam a lot. And if you ask just any Muslim, if, if they think that God hears the prayers that they pray five times a day, they'll look at you and shrug and say, maybe he does. Maybe. Maybe. The great polytheistic religions of the world, Hinduism and, and, and such, this is all about trying to get the gods to pay attention to you through offerings sacrifices, things like this. But the God of the Bible is different. He hears his people. He hears them when they cry out to him. Now, now next, God remembered his covenant. Now, that's a, a funny uh, phrase given the fact that we just talked about him hearing us no matter what. It's like, what do you mean God remembered? Did he forget about the promises that he made? Had he been actually ignoring these people up to this point? Well, it's, it's not quite the case because uh, it's, he's remembering a covenant, which means he's remembering a promise that he has made to them. And so outside of God's nature, he, he cannot honor, he cannot not honor his covenant, actually. And so this is less of a if God is going to ever respond to them versus a when. It's more of a when is God going to respond. And also what's not clear here is when did the Israelites truly start crying out to God? When did they truly start crying out to him, God? They've been suffering for a while, and, and we might be disappointed by God's inactivity here, but what we find when we look through the story up to this point, that's, that's Genesis 1 to here, is that God doesn't prefer to act without partnering with humans. It, it, his plan on earth clearly involves working with humans to accomplish his ends. He's not just going to unilaterally make decisions and impose them. This is all the way back in the garden. He puts Adam and Eve on in the garden, and he packs all this potential into the garden, and then he says, all right, you go harvest this. I'm going to be with you, but we're going to harvest the potential of this earth together. And so in a similar way, God is waiting to partner with his people to deliver them from Egypt. And what moves him are his, the cries their cries out to him. It's one thing to cry out against the oppressor, but here we have crying out to God. And, and, and we've seen a lot of crying out to the, uh, the oppressor in the United States over the last century or so, and, and that definitely has a point, and it definitely has a, a place, but there's something else when we turn and we cry out to God. Like, like, like when you really start crying out to God, because the people of God are kind of notorious for um, kind of thinking we're entitled to God's deliverance, whether we ask him or not, don't we? I mean, this is the problem that the Israelites are going to have over and over in these scriptures. It's a problem that we have today, even. I mean, think of our sufferings. Do we cry out to God 
from the, in the middle of them to, to help us, to deliver us, to, to help us. You see, God wants to work with us to bring his kingdom to the world. and He, he, he wants us to cry out to him. And so God remembering his covenant is a response. It's not so much a, a recollection, it's an action of participation with humanity <clears throat> to really enact the promises of his covenant. What are those? What's that covenant? That covenant, uh, a piece of that covenant went like this. Um, I will curse any who treat you with contempt. And so God remembering his covenant is saying, okay, I'm going to curse any who treat you with contempt. All the Egyptians are getting on board with throwing your babies in the Nile. They've enslaved you. They're throwing your babies in the Nile. I will curse any who treat you with contempt. That means that's God honoring his covenant. Now, now, so God, the, the next verb here is, so God, he heard, he remembered, but then he saw and he knew. He, he saw their suffering, but then even more so, he knew his suffering, knew their suffering. And, and this is much more than just like a God cognitively grasping, okay, they're in pain. This Hebrew word yada is really, uh, it's a word of knowing that is much deeper. It's, it's like me saying, I, I know my parents in a way that you can only know about my parents, you see, there's like a deeper level of knowing that I have about my parents than you guys have about my parents. It's the same word that is used when God says, uh, when Genesis says, and Adam went to his wife Eve and knew her, and she bore him a son. Okay, so there's like, there's a relational, uh, even kind of participatory level of knowing to make a kid. There's like a little participation uh, that takes place there of knowing. I think you guys can read between the lines. Um, to, to, there's this deeper participatory uh, relational knowing that's present in this word, which points to the fact that God isn't just, he hasn't just cognitively grasped that his people are suffering, but that he is participating in it as well. As, as the whips hit the back of the Hebrews, they hit his back too. As, as, as the Egyptians crush the Hebrews under their feet, God feels crushed as well. See, God is much more than just a compassionate God, although he is. Compassion, and it really points to some sympathetic pity that God may have on people who suffer, and, and he does have that. But he's also empathetic. He experiences and participates with the suffering of his people. This is a crazy thing about the God of the Bible. It comes up time and time again. God will identify himself. He says, I am the widow. I am the orphan that you're treating unjustly. Crazy. In the New Testament, James tells us uh, to, to clothe and to feed those who are, are hungry and naked is the same as clothing and feeding Jesus Christ. There's an identification with the sufferers, not just an understanding of them. Why? Because this is true covenant. This is true covenant. When, when someone is, is covenanted to somebody else, it means they are united in such a way, Genesis, between a man and a woman, they become one flesh in such a way that they share sufferings. They participate in one another's sufferings. They participate in one another's joys. In fact, if, if, if you are not participating in the suffering and the joy of your spouse, something's beginning to get a little bit cockeyed. You've lost the nature of the covenant of that marriage. But God can't lose that nature. And so when his people suffer, he suffers. When his people rejoice, they rejoice. It's like if, if you have a broken leg, your whole body is affected by it. That's how God is with his people. So what moves God? The cries of his people and his participation with their suffering. 
That's what moves God. And, and so we should cry out to him in our suffering. Now, Moses is going to make a really interesting transition word here as he transitions to this burning bush account. Presumably, Moses is actually the one who penned Genesis and Exodus. And he uses a very interesting word. You can probably look at it in, the, in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, meanwhile. Meanwhile. The Israelites are crying out under their suffering. God is suffering too. Meanwhile, Moses is out walking with his father-in-law's goats. It's like this crazy irony that Moses is trying to show us they had it rough and I had it great. Sure, I may have fallen from the palace of Pharaoh, but I was living a really nice life out here. God provided a family for me. He provided a job. I have a lot of time to think and just be by myself. Any introverts in here would be jealous of, of Moses. He's just walking around with his father-in-law's goats. Maybe they're sheep. I don't know what he's shepherding. But God's going to break into Moses' contented and comfortable life out here in the wilderness. He's going to ask, ask him to do something very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. He's going to ask him to confront the suffering of the Hebrews and be the figurehead that God uses to deliver them. Remember, God doesn't want to work alone. God never wants to work alone. So um, he, God's going to call him to do something hard. Let's read it together. Exodus chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 15. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush, and Moses looked. Oh, as Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but it was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. Here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings. There's that word again, I know. And I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, the Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. He answered, Oh, but Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said this to Moses. Say this to the Israelites. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. A pretty remarkable event has happened here. Uh, God has shown up, drawn Moses to this bush, and Moses encounters God. 
Now, now as, as we really ask the question of what does this tell us about how God works, I, I want to point at the pattern that God has taken Moses through because it's paradigmatic of the pattern that he's going to take the rest of Israel through, and it's paradigmatic of, of the, the pattern that he takes all of his people through, even us through, okay? What am I talking about? Um, now, Moses, when he was in Egypt, uh, Egypt really represents this, this uh, slavery and oppression. Uh, Moses didn't have to partake in any of that, being one of the princes of Egypt. Great movie, by the way. Uh, plug, there you go. Um, being one of the princes of Egypt, he didn't have to deal with any of that stuff. Instead, his sin is really on display, though, over there in Egypt as he murders somebody. And, and, and he murders uh, an Egyptian. Pharaoh finds out about it, wants to kill him, and then God delivers him. Okay, so we have Egypt is really here. And then a, a delivering event, God delivers Moses from the hand of Pharaoh and moves him into the wilderness. And when we say God moves us out, we're talking about God taking us uh, from the dominion and oppression of slavery, of sin, and, and, and moving us through a delivering event, putting us in the wilderness, okay? In this wilderness here. Now, what's interesting about the wilderness is a lot of us have a conception of the wilderness as this barren place, this place where there's, there's not much food, there, there's not much water, um, it's chaotic, it's uncertain, it's scary. But actually, when we look at the accounts of what the people of God experience in the wilderness, it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. Moses, God puts, moves Moses from Egypt to the wilderness. What does he find there? He finds gifts of grace. He finds a wife. He finds a family. He finds a way to make a living and not die in the wilderness. The wilderness is actually much more representative of God's provision, um, of God's way that he grows people. Moses grows in the, the wilderness, which is to say God sanctifies him, he purifies him. The wilderness is this space of, of provision and growth and, 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 and purifying and, and purity that the people of God encounter when God moves them there. Okay, and now it's in the wilderness that God is going to move Moses uh, into something else. So God moves him out of Egypt into the wilderness, plops him there. Now God's going to move him into something else. And just like there was a delivering event, there's going to be a calling event on this side of the wilderness. For Moses, this is the burning bush. The burning bush is Moses' calling event. It's where he encounters God. He had always believed in God, but here he actually encounters God. God, and God reorients him and gives him a new purpose, a new meaning. He gives him mission, the significance of mission. And so this is how God works. He moves us out of, of the oppression and dominion of sin, places us in the wilderness. Who knows how long that time is? And then he moves us into, through a calling event, calling event is here, very important, into purpose, meaning, significance, mission, what he wants to accomplish with us. And for Moses, that means going to Egypt to be the figurehead of delivering his people Egypt. Something he tried over here by killing an Egyptian slave driver. But he didn't understand how to do it. He needed the wilderness, the sanctifying, purifying, growing provision of the wilderness to get reoriented to how to do that the right way through an encounter with God that was going to tell him how to do it as well. So, the, the, so that's how Moses worked. And you could uh, chart the same thing with all of Israel. They're going to come out. They're actually in slavery and oppression here. The delivering event are going to be the ten plagues in the Red Sea. Okay, that's going to deliver them into the wilderness. It's a place of incredible provision. One million people get bread provided to them each and every day. 
except Sundays, because on Saturday, or well, except Saturdays, because on Fridays they get a double portion. They're going to come across water just coming out of rocks for them. They're going to grow. They're, they're going to be sanctified. They're going to be purified in this wilderness. And for Israel, the calling event is going to be Mount Sinai. We're going to get to that later in the book of Exodus, this crazy picture of a smoldering mountain. And, and at Mount Sinai, they find out that God has, has moved them out to move them into worship of God as a unified nation that all other nations in the world might look upon them and figure out, oh, this is how we worship the God who created everything. Now they get another wilderness stint there because in this calling event, they actually decide to worship a golden calf instead. And so uh, God says, all right, we need to have those people die out first. There's another wilderness, but it's still one of provision. It's still one of sanctification in the real sense that we're, he's letting the people who are rebellious completely die out. And then there's another calling event to get them into the promised land, and that's crossing the Jordan River, the miracle of the Jordan River. Okay, so, so this is the, it, it works it through like this. Now, I'll, I'll give you a real-life example of this so that you can apply it to, think of some ways that it applies to your life, because up to this point, I think we're still too much in the abstract. And I get that. I'm going to give you um, a vulnerable one here. We're going we're gonna to work through um, Ryan's wilderness um, that he, where he learned about how his attitude towards women was incorrect. Okay, a lot of vulnerability here. Um, if you guys chuckle at any point in time, that'll make me feel better. So feel free to laugh at this, okay? Um, but uh, when I was a kid, I didn't know who I was if I didn't have a significant other. I, it was part and parcel of my identity in middle school and in high school and in college. Um, I'm like this, my three little brothers, uh, we always have had long-term committed relationships. And on one sense, it's something to look at a family and applaud that we have you know, four boys that are committing and, and being faithful and honorable in a certain sense towards women. Uh, but for, for me, I was really doing it because I was scared what life would look like if that wasn't the case. And, and so that was really um, using women in order to make me feel better about myself. That, that's not good. That, that's sin, okay? But God had a delivering event for me where he um, really convicted me of my heart in this matter. That, that my, my, my fear to be alone um, was really hindering really the way that I related with everybody in life. It was actually uh, holding back my friendships in a lot of different ways. And so, and so what did I do? I, I broke up with my girlfriend. She was great. There's nothing wrong with her. Uh, <laughs> it's me. Literally, it's not you. It's me, right? Uh, so breakup placed in the wilderness, okay? In the wilderness. God's provision was in the wilderness in an incredible way. In those, it was, it was like nine months where I was just in the wilderness. I had resolved not to look for a, another significant other, and I found my friendships that I had were so much more full, so much more robust. My relationship with God was so much more full, so much more robust. It was a time of incredible growth, incredible maturation, a lot of sanctification, incredible purity was in these nine months. It was truly amazing. It was incredible. It was a, a when, you go, when God moves you out of the slavery of sin and into the wilderness, what you find is that the wilderness itself is an incredible grace and an incredible gift. There's nothing like the wilderness. It's, it's just incredible. Now, like I said, this only lasted for nine months because I had a calling event on the other side where every time I'd pray to God for the period of about three weeks, he would say, uh, you're going to marry this girl. Not, not just you need to check out this girl. She's great. You should consider being romantically involved. It was full on, you're going to marry this woman. And I was like, this is insane. I'm, I'm a crazy person. I am an obsessive person. Um, 
this doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, God, I'm definitely not good enough for that. God, I finally got to the place where I was fine uh, not getting married in life. Why would you put this on me now? That's going to take a lot of work. I really don't want to do that, God. And I really argued with God for a period of three weeks. Um, not, not, not to say, not to knock this, this woman at all who happens to be my wife. She was incredible, you know, but I was scared. <laughs> I was like, that was incredible. She's incredible. I don't know if I could do it. A lot like Moses feels here in the burning bush account. Um, and so I eventually, I say, you know what? Okay, I'm gonna, I, th- I think I might be crazy, so I'm just gonna tell her everything. So if she's freaked out, um, then I'll know that I was crazy. But if she's actually still up for it after I tell her, hey, I think we're gonna get married, um, then I'll know, okay, I guess this actually was God after all. And I told her, and she didn't freak out. And she said, God has been bringing me through this wilderness as well. Then she went to Peru for a year. I was like, well, wait wait a second here. Wait a second here. Then she came back, and six months later, we were married. We just had our third girl together. Okay, God took me from Egypt, uh, the the sin, sinful notion towards women, put me in the wilderness, grew me, matured me, uh, uh, drove me towards purity, had a calling event for me so that I would have a, a new purpose and a new mission and a new significance tied to that relationship. Now, this isn't saying that this is how people get married. This is just what God did with me. Uh, this is just what I needed in order to get there. Um, and and we, really shouldn't, uh, we really shouldn't view God and view the wilderness as the way that we get things that we want from God. You know, we can be subtle and sly and, and do that and try to play games with God. Like, okay, I'll give everything up, just waiting for you to give it to me, you know? That, that, that's not how we do it. We actually discover that the wilderness itself is the grace. It is the grace, so, wow, I just skipped so far forward. Okay. So, yeah, we, we go to the wilderness not to find God's gifts, but in order to find God's meaning and purpose for our lives. And we find out that that itself is that gift of grace. Um, one example, I'll just throw one more example to you, that, that person who walked through this, you know, who believed in God but hadn't encountered him until one night is Blaise Pascal, famous philosopher Blaise Pascal. Um, He had, was really big into philosophy and he believed in God, but he didn't really understand exactly everything that was going on until one night when he encountered God. He encountered God and he had an experience and he wrote down everything that was going on during that experience and he folded it up and he eventually sewed it into his coat jacket and they found it in his coat jacket after he was dead. No one knew about it. But this is an excerpt from it. It says, The year of grace, 1654, Monday the 23rd of November, from about half past ten in the evening until about half past midnight, so two hours. Fire. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and intellectuals. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. The God of Jesus Christ, Joy, joy, ellipsis, joy, tears of joy. You see, he encountered God that night. The the, the Christian faith is not just a knowledge of everything that God is up to. It's not just a knowledge about who God is. It definitely includes that. But it always points to an encounter with God. There's always the hope that, that everybody who enters into the wilderness becomes a first person witness of who God is and doesn't just know about second, second-hand accounts. That's what the Christian life is all about. 
It's all about, uh, the, the, the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So not just understand that the Lord is good, but, but taste it for yourself. Taste it for yourself. It's one thing to know, to know that God forgives you. It's another thing entirely to, to experience that he forgives you, to taste his forgiveness, to grasp that he has forgiven you. And so this is all to say that the burning bush is for all of us as if, if, if we would just be open to it. The burning bush is for all of us. That's how God works with us. He places these calling events at the end of these wildernesses of provision and growth. Okay, that's how God works. Now, what does this passage tell us about who God is? Like, uh, you, you've probably noticed that I'm staying out of the weeds here a little bit, but now we're gonna dive into the weeds a little bit. Because God could have shown up as anything, but he shows up as fire. He shows up as fire, which is very instructive. Fire means that Moses can't fully approach God. He, he can't fully approach God. Of, uh, he can't see God. For, he has to take off his shoes. He's so scared. He's hiding his face. But, but God shows up as fire, and, and here's why. Because fire is both beautiful and deadly. It's both beautiful and deadly. It, it gives the warmth needed for life. Yes, it's also completely fatal if we get too close. So, so fire is life-giving and, and death-dealing both at the same time. That, that's the nature of fire, isn't it? And, and the, the nature of fire presents us with the fundamental truth of what life is like with God. And, and it goes like this. We can't live with God and we can't live without God. That's the human condition in a nutshell. We can't live with God. We can't live without God. We, we can't live without him because we were created for him and on some level we all want him. But on another level, we've all turned away from him and are broken, which has made his presence fatal to human beings just like fire. The, the immediate presence of God is fatal to us. Um, later in the book of Exodus, I mean, we, we see this all throughout scripture, but, but Moses in Exodus chapter two, or chapter 32, I think. No, it's not chapter 32. I forget what chapter it is. But he says, show me your glory, God. And God says, I, I can't show you my glory. It'll kill you, Moses. It'll, it'll kill you. The prophet Isaiah find, uh, has a vision at one point later in Israel's history, and that vision, he's placed in the throne room, and his conclusion is, oh no, I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm too close to God. I'm absolutely dead. He thinks he's going to die. You see, we, we want to be with God, but we can't. The good news is God wants to be with us too. That's the hope of the gospel, that God wants to be with us, that, that we might once again belong to God. And, and so if you read all of the book of Genesis and, and the first couple chapters of Exodus up to this point, the, the question, there's a big question that comes up from this content, or, or from the context. And it's not necessarily um, how can this bush uh, be on fire without burning up, without being consumed? That's what we want to ask with our 21st century Western scientific minds. And that, that, it's a good question, and we can answer it elsewhere, but it's not what this is trying to, to tell us. What, the, what question this is trying to inspire within us is how can Moses be here and not be consumed? Not how isn't the bush consumed, but, but how isn't Moses consumed altogether? It's very strange. And it's because there's a third party here. There's a third party present here, and it's not the goods. It's not the goods. It's not the Lord. It's not Moses. You see it in, in verse two. 
It says, then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within the bush. The angel of the Lord. This is a, a distinct third party is present here. Not the Lord, the angel of the Lord. But in the remainder of this conversation that happens between Moses and this angel of the Lord, Moses refers to him as God. And as Moses is writing this down for us, he says, God said this. It was very interesting. And, and the angel of the Lord shows up a dozen or so times in the Old Testament. And the angel of the Lord, it's unlike any other angel. The other angels uh, show up and, and they say, this is what the Lord says. And they say what the Lord says. So Gabriel, he's kind of a popular one, he shows up to Mary and he says, this is what the Lord says. You shall be with child, yada, 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 yada. He says, prefaces it with, this is what the Lord says. But on the other hand, this angel of the Lord seems to be identical to the Lord and speaks for the Lord without differentiating himself from the Lord. And at the same time, it's very distinct from the Lord with its own title. And, and so you have this strange situation with the angel of the Lord where on the one hand, uh, he seems to be identical with the Lord, okay? But on the other hand, his own title, very distinct. And, and this is how it works. The angel of the Lord actually is the way that God continually solves this problem of God and humans not being able to be together. The angel of the Lord is this solution. So, so for, for instance, and later in Exodus, Mo, Moses gets in an argument with God. And in this argument with God, he, he's, um, God is saying, I'm going to kill all of the Israelites because they just worshipped this golden, sta- golden calf. And Moses says, please, God, don't. Don't kill them and, and continue to lead us through the wilderness. We need you. And, and God says, I can't lead you through the wilderness anymore. This people is stiff-necked and rebellious. If I were to go in them, I would consume all of them. And Moses says, please go with you. We don't want to go without you. Please go with you. And so God makes this accommodation. He says, I will send my angel then. And he will go before you. It's absolutely fascinating. This is how God is able to go with his people. Um, One one, uh, Bible commentator uh, put it like this. He said, The angel of the Lord is revealed as a merciful accommodation of God, whereby the Lord can be present among a sinful people, where were he to go with them himself, his presence would consume them. The angel suffers no reduction or adjustment of his full deity, yet he is that mode of deity whereby a holy God can keep company with sinners. And so it's because of the angel of the Lord that Moses can draw near without being consumed. And and this happens over and over in the Bible. And in the Genesis account, we've already seen this figure present himself a couple of times. Um, in the book of, of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah are given this promise that they're going to be a great nation. The only problem is uh, they seem to be sterile. And so Sarah at one point says to Abraham, he's like, she's like, well, you're the one that got the promise from God, so how about you take my hand, servant? I don't want to get in the way of this promise coming to our, our family and coming to this earth, so how about you take my, my handmaiden and make a son through him? You can see the guilt and the shame that Sarah has there. It's really sad. She's like, I'm, I'm getting in the way of God's promise coming into the world, sleep with my maidservant, Hagar. Abraham does, I mean, this kind of despicable stuff going on here, you know, but, but the, the, the thing is, is that um, God's people uh, throughout the Bible, uh, they keep forgetting that, that covenant is a big deal to God, and marriage in particular is a really, really, really big deal to God, and so they move past it. Abraham had already moved past, uh, like, treated his marriage terribly at this point a couple times, where he gave his wife Sarah to other men twice for fear of saving his own skin, but, but Abraham makes a son through Hagar. And, and, and Hagar uh, decides to act uh, mean as well, and she looks at Sarah and says, you're old, I'm young, I have a son, 
you don't. Sarah's enraged. She says, I'm going to send you out into the desert. Uh, essentially, the subtext is you're going to go out there and you're going to die. And then uh, Sarah uh, asks if she can do this to Abraham. And, and Abraham, being the ineffectual kind of coward that he is, he, he doesn't want it to happen, but he says, you just do whatever you want. I'm going to stay out of it. And so sends them into the desert to die. And, and at one point, uh, the, the baby's crying. They're really thirsty. And, and Hagar says, she sets the baby down. She's like, I can't bear to watch my, my baby die. And she goes away. But then the angel of the Lord shows up to her. The angel of the Lord shows up and, and promises her, I will make you and your son into a great nation as well. Now, no one there deserved God's grace. <laughs> it was a really broken situation, really broken circumstance. But the angel of the Lord shows up and can mediate grace. God can show up through the angel of the Lord and mediate grace. The same thing happens with Jacob. Jacob is a really greedy, despicable guy. He, he cons his way uh, uh, through life, <laughs> essentially. Cons uh, things away from his older brother. Then he cons a bunch of stuff away from his father-in-law when he runs away there. And, but one night, he's separated from all of his possessions and then wrestles with this angel of the Lord figure. He says, hey, what's, what's your name? What's your name? And the angel of the Lord says, why do you ask my name? I'm not going to give him the name. But then the angel of the Lord looks at him and gives him a name and says, your name is Israel. Israel wrestles El, God. Wrestles with God. Not wrestles with the angel of the Lord, wrestles with God. <clears throat> the, the same commentator goes on to say, there's only one other person in the Bible who's both identical with yet distinct from God. One who without abandoning the full essence or prerogatives of deity or diminishing the divine holiness is able to accommodate himself to the company of sinners without reaching mercy. The angel of the Lord cannot be understood except for as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. This, this flame in the bush, you see, is Jesus Christ before he was born as a human being. The Jesus Christ who shows up on the scene and says, before Abraham was, I am, invokes the name of the Lord for him. Wasn't an alien thing to say. He had been on his tongue 1,300 years prior. I am who I am. And it's because of this angel of the Lord, uh, Jesus took on the sin of everyone who had put their trust in God, um, that now God could encounter humans again. Not, not just through this individual angel of the Lord popping up here, popping up there, but the spirit of the Lord going everywhere sent by Jesus Christ himself to be his representative in the world. So we experience the Son through the Spirit here. Not limited to, to geographical place, but now the angel of the Lord can be everywhere. He's how Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Jacob, Mogus, Moses, and the whole Israelite camp could draw near to God without being consumed. And if you will let him, the angel of the Lord will be that which allows God to draw near to you without being consumed. Now, the, object, the objection goes like this. At least it does for me. No way. I'm, I'm far too gone. To, to which I respond, you most definitely are not. You see, in this interaction, Moses is worried that the people won't listen to him. Perhaps it's because they remember that he's just a murderer. You know, it says that the Pharaoh died that remembered that he was a murderer. But perhaps the, the Hebrew elders, perhaps some of them are still alive. But there's this really interesting piece here in verse 15 where God says, no, you tell the Hebrews 
the Hebrew elders, you tell them that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent to you. Why? Why does he add that piece? I, I used to think that this kind of phraseology, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was, was the, the way that someone could put forth a really strong resume. But it's actually the exact opposite. If, if you go and read the book of Genesis, these aren't heroic people at all. God, God saying, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, of, and Jacob, is him essentially saying, I work with incredibly unpromising material. I took the coward Abraham. I, I took the dysfunctional father of Isaac. I took the, the, the schemer, con man of Jacob, and I made them into great people, and I changed the world through them. And so you, Moses, while you, yes, you are a murdering, you are a fearful man, who knows what I can make of you? Who knows how I can empower you to deliver an entire nation out of slavery? Who knows how much I can impact the world through you, Moses? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is who our God is. Who knows what he can do through you to impact the world? If you just let him lead you into the wilderness, sometimes these deliverance events, they can be scary. They can seem like too big a gateway to get through. But I promise you, this wilderness is one of provision, one of grace, one of joy. If you let him bring you into that wilderness, that unmistakable calling event is always at the end that will infuse your life with purpose and with meaning like you've never had before. This is what God does with his people. They believe in him. He moves them out to the wilderness so that he can move them in through a calling event to find his mission and partner with them to bring forth his mission into the world. And so this morning, friends, hear that this burning bush just isn't for Moses. It's an encounter with the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, that's for all of us, many times over the course of our lives. Let's pray. Father God, um, we come to you as, as your people, and, and I also pray for my friends here who would say they're, they're not quite there yet, that they're just starting to ask questions about who you might be, God. Um, I just pray that you would open up all of our hearts to the possibility of a burning bush encounter with you, whatever that may look like. And so God, I, I pray that as the band comes up here and leads us in this time of song, as, as the band comes up here to continue the preached word, Lord, I would just ask that you would help all of us open our hands and allow you to deliver us into the wilderness. God, for, for those of us who are in the wilderness with regards to a lot of different subjects, whether it be relationships, career, money, geography, where we're going to be in the world, I pray that you would show up in a calling event, a powerful calling event, that they might encounter you in a significant way and know without a doubt what you're calling them to do in life. So just bless this time. Show up in this time and, and, and this space. Show up in this time as our people are worshiping at home, Father. We, we love you and Thank you for showing us how you work so that we can have confidence and participate with it. Amen.